Welcome to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast, hosted by Collegium Student Fellows together with senior members of our team. This podcast features interviews with visiting scholars and faculty authors of new work that help us to appreciate the shape of life today, both in its dynamism and in its timelessness. Here we approach the mysteries of reality with wonder, exploring from a wide variety of disciplinary angles, all of which revolve around a core commitment to the unity of truth. Here, authors make the case for how and why their books are important, not just for specialists in their own field, but for all of us inside the university and out who seek wisdom for a life well lived. I'm your host, Lori Ellen Moore. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Professor Jeremy McInerney, a professor of classical studies from our own home, the University of Pennsylvania. Professor McInerney received his bachelor's degree from Macquarie University in Australia before acquiring his master's and PhD in ancient history and archaeology from Cal Berkeley. In addition to his position here at the University of Pennsylvania, Professor McInerney taught as the Whitehead professor at the American School in Athens and presented the Great Courses lecture series on ancient Greek civilization. His research interests are dynamic and varied, from cattle in the ancient world to sanctuaries and social and political history. Professor McInerney, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Laurie Ellen. It's good to be here. Today, I want to focus on your new textbook, Ancient Greece, A New History. Ancient Greece is a topic which has been addressed countless times. What motivated you to write a new textbook on it? That's a good question. There were two things. The first was that I spent 2013 and 2014 in Athens, and I was really struck by how much new work had been done, how much new archaeology had been done, how many new sites there were that weren't really being discussed in the current textbooks. So I felt it was time for something that was more up to date. And the second reason was I've been teaching Greek history here for a number of years, and I really just wasn't terribly satisfied with any of the textbooks. I thought they were kind of boring, they were kind of bland, and I wanted to do one that would not only match the course that I teach, but would basically give the students something that I hoped would be a little bit more personal and a little bit more interesting, namely my own particular take on Greek history. Excellent. So those are all things I want to talk about in the course of this discussion. One question I want to present to you and the thing you mentioned in your very first chapter of the book is why should we study the Greeks and why are they important to us today? When you teach professionally in any area, it's very easy to take for granted that that area is obviously important because if you're teaching it, it's probably the case that you love it. And that's certainly true for me. I've been working with the Greeks for 30 years, and I, I love everything about Greek culture, but that's not good enough as a reason for teaching it. You've got to actually think about what's significant here. For me, the moment when I really started to ask those questions hard was after 9-11, when I had literally been teaching the first lecture of the semester the day before the towers were attacked. The night of the attack, after I'd put the kids to bed, I had this realization, good grief, tomorrow I meant to get up and give another lecture in Greek history. Why should anybody care, given that the world has just shifted on its axis? Over the course of both that semester and the subsequent months and even the following years, I felt as if I had to articulate to myself 
and then to the students who were bothering to take the class, why I thought this material was important. I began to think about the way that we operate in what I would call a very presentist environment, meaning we normally think about things as they impact our lives right now, but we don't have much historical depth or memory or understanding of how we got to be where we are and why we think the way we do and why the world is the way that it is. And for me, the Greeks were a really important part of how we got to be where we are. I don't mean this in an uncritical way. I'm not trying to do, you know, the glory that was Greece and the grandeur that was Rome. I'm interested in a very critical understanding of what this bedrock civilization was. The analogy that I often use, both in lectures and in the book, is that I take very seriously the idea of cultural DNA, that just as there is physical DNA and that we carry traits that we've picked up from our ancestors and carried on, so too culturally there are aspects of ancient cultures and earlier cultures that are still alive in us, and that it's actually very important if you're going to live a critically rich and engaged life to be aware of what those are. Another reason you mention in the book is that studying the ancient world, the Greeks, can serve as an anecdote to the fluff of pop culture we see today. <laughs> uh, classicist myself, I'm very inclined to concur with this interpretation. But I want to know for our listeners, how do you consider Greek literature, art, theater, and the culture that surrounded them as different from popular culture? Was it the popular culture of its own age? That's also an excellent question. I mean, in an obvious way, yes, Aristophanes' plays are the pop culture of their day. And people have often pointed out that if you look at, say, comedies today, you can trace a line from sitcoms back to new comedy in the fourth century, or you can trace a line from something like Monty Python and the weird and the silly and the exuberant comedy of that style right back to old comedy and Aristophanes. So there is a way in which some of the culture that we're talking about is not high culture. It was actually the pop culture of its day. And I mean, I'm not completely opposed to pop culture. I mean, I listen to pop music the same as anybody else. It's more a question of balance in our lives. It's just that it's so easy to be inundated and surrounded by pop culture through a kind of MTV culture that saturates our consciousness. That, I think, is what's to be avoided. And what I love about Greek culture is that much of it is, in a sense, honest, and it forces you to be reflective and to think about and engage with the world in a thoughtful manner. I mean, the tragedies are incredibly moving, and they are eternal while still being topical. Can I give you an example? Please do. So earlier today, I was actually over at uh, Professor Murnahan's seminar. We were talking about the Oresteia. Now, this is a series of plays that will culminate in the trial of Orestes for having killed his mother. And he's been pursued by the Furies, these blood-drinking monsters that are the spirits of vengeance. On the one hand, if you ask, you know, is there pop culture there? Well, the answer is yes. It was performed at a theatrical festival. It was performed in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people. It's topical because it deals with issues like the founding of the homicide court in Athens. So you could say it's like watching Law and Order or something of that sort. But by the same token, it is also philosophically and ethically tough. It's posing the question, can we have real justice in a human setting when a man has 
killed his mother. And when he has done it because she killed her husband, his father. Now, these are, these are tough issues. And one of the things that the Greeks often do in their tragedies, for example, is they create really difficult ethical problems and dilemmas, and they don't come up with an easy solution. You know, think about Antigone. She's got one brother who died in front of the walls of Thebes, and the king of Thebes, Creon, has said he is not to be given a proper burial because he was a rebel. But Antigone's attitude is... That may be the law of man, the edict of the king, but natural law says I must give my brother a decent burial. So which trumps the other, natural law or the law of man? Those are hard issues. And the Greeks do this in their tragedies in particular. They don't give you easy answers at all. You know, Medea does not offer easy answers when she finds herself having been put aside by a husband who's made a more advantageous marriage. And the situations that the plays deal with, with, you know, infanticide or with parricide or matricide or incest, these are hard issues. And it's something of that toughness about the Greeks and their culture that I find really astonishing and really moving. Very interesting. And that is a good point to make that they don't come up with easy answers, because I think a lot of modern sitcoms today have this unrealistic fantastic, almost escapism fiction that we get drawn into by at the end of 30 minutes, everything is wrapped up with a nice, neat little bow. Right. So that is definitely a challenge that's a good qualitative difference between modern pop culture in some instances and Greek culture. Yeah. Another question I want to ask about your first chapter, Why Study the Greeks, (laughs) is that you emphasize the ways in which our culture is in dialogue with the ancient Greeks. You also self-consciously point out that every book about the Greeks, including this one, has roots in a particular moment in European intellectual history. So given this, what limitations do you see or what concerns did you have about approaching this textbook from our modern time? Yeah, the danger and what I was hopefully alert to was a kind of simplified narrative that says the Greeks were great. They were the first X, and you can fill in for X, whether it's democracy, politics, biology, whatever. We are their linear descendants, and we should study them so that we can salvage Western civilization. That, that kind of narrative, which is very dangerous. The line between us and the Greeks is not simple. It's not a straight line. And I'm not trying to wipe out 1,500 years of medieval or early modern history. And I'm also not trying to exclude the histories of other cultures and other civilizations. I don't mean that at all. But the relationship that we have to the Greeks is an extremely complicated one. The way I would summarize it would be just to take an example of something like democracy. The facile connection between us and the Greeks is that we have a democracy and they had a democracy and in fact invented the word. So that would allow you, if you wanted to, to just say, well, you know, where the descendants of the Greeks now democracy is founded in the first Western European democracy, namely that of the Greeks. But a much more complicated investigation of this phenomenon would yield some really interesting results. For example, Greek democracy was direct and participatory. It was not representative. So virtually every modern democracy, unless you're talking about the cantons of Switzerland or something like that, or Iceland, 
basically every modern democracy involves a republican system of government where representatives are elected to represent us. And often the criteria for that representation have been, you know, quite problematic. They had to be the landowners or they had to be men or they had to be white. There are all sorts of ways you can restrict the franchise. So, you know, it's not as simple as they're Democrats, we're Democrats. It's more that this is the point from which we come and we have, like musicians playing a fugue, played with that theme and that melody, but our harmonies have been somewhat different. Very interesting. So this moves me on to the next thing I want to discuss, Mm. the ideas of democracy and specifically Periclean Athens. So you have a whole chapter on this. Periclean Athens is the 5th century BC, often considered the golden age and greatest part of ancient Greece. And today is often this ideal You have rhetoric out there saying we should emulate. This is what we should aspire towards. So your chapter talks a lot about the inclusion and exclusion of people within that democratic system and comments upon the different disenfranchised groups. So what compelled you to take this approach, which is so different than the typical way of outlining this era, and what do you see it being in stake within this interpretation? What's at stake is a proper appreciation of the past and avoiding a kind of dangerous appropriation of the past. There are certainly plenty of alt-right groups right now who are trying to use the supposed whiteness of classical civilization as a kind of rallying cry and a not even a disguise, but rather the outer face of an extraordinarily racist, narrow and dangerous interpretation of culture today. And I reject that completely. If we look at the Greeks in what I'm hoping is this critical fashion that looks at them from all sides, you can acknowledge, on the one hand, extraordinary cultural production. History, as a kind of analytical interpretation of the past, really begins with people like Herodotus and Thucydides. Philosophy of the kind of orderly discourse around both metaphysics and ethics and even scientific inquiry It begins with the pre-Socratics and then reaches a kind of peak with Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. So there are many, many areas, and you can replicate this with architecture and with biology and with mathematics, many, many areas where you can say, wow, the Greeks really produced in a very short space of time an extraordinary number of incredibly brilliant men whose work was extraordinarily influential over the centuries. Fine. But it is equally a part of the story that The culture which produced those investigators and those cultural accomplishments was one that existed on slave labor. There's simply no doubt about that. Moses Finley, 70 years ago, 60 years ago, posed the question, was Greek civilization based on slave labor? And the answer that he gave after a very thorough investigation was categorically, yes, it was. So the labor of enslaved people, Greek and foreign, made possible this quote-unquote Greek miracle. And that Greek miracle was also based on modes of inquiry and of discourse that for the most part were not available to women and was also based on a system that tended to guard citizenship very, very jealously and didn't allow the citizenship enfranchisement to many people who were born in other places, even if they came to live in Athens, which is the epicenter of all of this. So. On the one hand, great accomplishments, extraordinary record, not to be denied. But on the other hand, 
to be qualified by the recognition that there were many people who were excluded from that. And, you know, I think that's, that's a story worth telling. I mean, try to do a women's history of 5th century Athens, and it is very, very difficult to do because 99% of the sources are men writing about women, not women writing about themselves. There are one or two voices, I'll grant that, Sappho's voice, which is extraordinary, a few others, Corinna, a couple of epic poets. But for the most part, what we're generally dealing with, just in the area of sex and gender, is a world constructed by, created by, consumed by, designed for men. Really interesting. Thank you for that. So you talked a little bit about what it means to do history, critical methods of investigation. This is also something that I want to touch on. In your book, you say that history is a combination of evidence and interpretation. I think this is astute, but I think it is also very different from the typical student's conception of what a history class is and what constitutes history, which is more so you're recounting things which occurred in the past. So can you elaborate a little bit on this nuanced view of history and how it helped you shape the way you wrote your textbook? Sure. In a way, that's a reflection of my own training as an historian. It's also a reflection of my response to basically three different books. I'll characterize those for you. When I was a grad student, my own professor had produced a history of ancient Greece, which we used as a textbook, and which I used when I was preparing for my PhD exams and so forth. It was a very detailed account of the major problems in Greek history with very careful discussion and evaluation of the evidence for these various problems and potential solutions. It was as dry as dust. And it's sort of famous in Greek history circles for being an incredibly useful, erudite, boring book. I recommend it to grad students when they're preparing (laughs) for their exams, but I would not recommend it for an undergraduate or for anyone in the general public who just wanted to know more about the Greeks. That immediately teaches you that there are different genres, there are different ways of writing history. By contrast, when I was a student, I read a book by a fellow called John Fine, and it's a book called A Critical History of the Greeks, which was first written, I think, maybe even in the 50s. And I loved it. I loved it then, and I still love it today, even though it's now two generations old. And the reason I loved it was because it told a story. It wasn't trying to evaluate problems. It was trying to give you a narrative, not just in this year, this fellow was Archon, and this year, this person died, or in this year, the Athenians sailed off and tried to sack Sicily. It was told from the point of view of clearly someone who loved Greek history and was enthusiastic about it. And I always remembered that. As I started teaching, I had to find a textbook to work with. And I settled on, as most people in the States do who are teachers, on a a textbook that was written, in fact, by a committee of people, that is to say, a group of historians. Now, if you take six historians and say, tell me something that you all agree upon, you'll be lucky to find a single thing that they'll agree to, okay? There was a Vietnam War, all right? American historians would agree on that. But if you made some statement like, in the Vietnam War, the American military was superior, you'll have, you know, many historians saying, well, that's not true, and the tactics are different, and you've got to take into account conditions, yada, yada, yada. It's going to be contested, right? So if you put together a committee of people and produce a textbook, in my opinion, it's going to suffer from being a little bit bland. It's not going to have much personality. 
So I wanted something which would have the vigor of a personal view, but would also be responsible to an audience, particularly people who haven't read any Greek history before, in saying, listen, this is the story as I see it, based on the issues that I think are important. Here are some of the problems that we're dealing with, and this is the way I would evaluate the evidence. I'm not claiming that everybody's version of Greek history is the same in value as everybody else's. I do claim to know the sources a little bit better, but I also don't want it to be simply a seamless narrative surface. I wanted to show people that, you know, sometimes the evidence is contradictory. Sometimes it's gnarly. Sometimes it's difficult to understand. Sometimes what the archaeology suggests and what the literature suggests don't fit very well. So how do we go about stitching this together and making a narrative that we can be content with? And that's an ongoing problem. I mean, you know, if I do a second edition, I'll probably change everything I said. <laughs> <laughs> Those are definitely points I want to touch on. Another thing before we move past yeah. the idea of what history is, is that a lot of people think of history and are concerned about subjectivity within history. Right. So are there any concerns you have about seeking for some sort of objective truth in history? I don't believe that there is such a thing truly as objectivity or the truth in history, as if there is a single unitary thing that's, you know, concealed under a mass of evidence and we peel it away and we get to it shining there waiting for us like a bit of gold. By the same token, I don't despair and say it's all subjective. What I do think is that provided one is trained on how to read sources critically, when I say read sources, I don't just mean read literature. I mean, you know, an archaeological site is a source and one reads it in the sense that one tries to interpret what the archaeology is throwing up. Provided one does that with care, provided one does that acknowledging that one has a point of view already. I mean, you know, the fact that I'm an old white guy means I'm going to read it one way. If I were an old black woman, I'd read it a different way. There's no doubt about that. I consider that to be a source of richness, not a disability that history labors under. So as we're in dialogue as an academic discipline with other disciplines, whether it be gender studies or whether it be geography or whether it be scientific studies applied to archaeology, as we bring in different approaches, whether it be post-colonial theory, whether it be network theory, whether it be gender theory, I find these invigorate the way we investigate the past. I know for a fact that there are ways that I approach the past that my teachers would never have been interested in. That's true. And they had a certain view as old white guys, and I do too, but I'm trying to be alert to some of the other approaches that our academic colleagues are bringing to the table. One of the things that's delightful about ancient history, it's also its problem, is that because the sources are what we would call lacunos, in other words, there's so little compared to what actually happened and was generated in the past, we're dealing with just little bits and pieces here and there. I love the fact that it means to be a good ancient historian, you've really got to learn how to read archaeology. You've got to learn about vase iconography. You've got to familiarize yourself with gender theory. You've got to think about theoretical approaches drawn from the social sciences. You've got to be a bit of a magpie going after every little shiny bit. It doesn't mean that my interpretation is more objective than yours, but it may mean that mine is more detailed and more comprehensive and, you know, in a sense, more professional. 
I would now like to dig in, if you'll pardon the pun, yeah. <laughs> into the archaeological side. Sure. This is something you've talked about a little bit at the beginning as a motivation for writing this text, yep. but also something you mentioned in your textbook. Classics and the study of ancient Greece is historically defined by philology and textual approaches. Right. So what do you see as the value in looking at archaeological sources and what sorts of things can this help us understand that you don't get from the texts? That's in some respects the hardest question you've asked because the answer is one that is almost intuitive. A very fine teacher of mine used to say that you really learn Greece through the soles of your feet, meaning you should walk all over Greece. And he was right. I learned much more by going to Greece and spending time there than I ever did in the classroom. Now, you know, walking around Greece doesn't teach you how to read Sophocles, and it doesn't teach you how to read Aeschylus or Thucydides. But I actually think that you are a better reader of Thucydides or of Aeschylus if you have a sense of the actual world in which those works were produced or enacted or performed. It enriches my reading of, to get back to Aeschylus, who we were talking about earlier, to be familiar with the theatre of Dionysus in Athens where the plays were performed. To give you a concrete example, one of the things I've been working on is the Aeschylean trilogy, the Oresteia. I mentioned this earlier. In that, when we encounter the Furies at the beginning of the third play, we get some very convoluted and contradictory descriptions of what they look like. Now, on the page, this is a matter of tracking down words and saying, well, that metaphor suggests that they're like dragons, or that word there makes them sound like bloodthirsty lions, or maybe they're vampires. Fine. But when you've actually been to Athens and you've spent time in the theatre of Dionysus, it's virtually impossible to read these descriptions without asking, what would they have looked like on stage in front of an Athenian audience? They don't exist just on the page. Actors had to actually present them. Directors and actors had to make decisions about what masks and what robes do I wear. And so we have to think about, as an Athenian, what would I have been responding to? Would I have said, oh my God, that looks like something out of a horror movie? Or would it have been, oh, that's really weird. That person, you know, that's somebody in a cow suit. It makes it somehow more vivid for me when I know the locations. Let me give you another example. This might make it a bit clearer. Pericles in the funeral oration, as recorded by Thucydides, is delivering a speech which is famous as possibly the most coherent and eloquent statement of what it means to be a citizen in democratic Athens. I mean, it is truly an extraordinary speech. It was delivered in an actual spot in Athens. It's not just on the page. It wasn't published in a newspaper. It was heard by thousands of Athenians in a specific setting, probably near the Dipolon Gate. And once you've been to the Dipolon Gate, you have a sense of just how small Athens is, and you have a sense of how you could see the Acropolis behind it as part of the backdrop, so that the words take on a new life because you have a sense of the setting and of the place. Place and setting, the geographic turn or the spatial turn, as it's sometimes been called in recent years, is incredibly important and it enriches the way we interact with the Greeks if we can bring that to our skill set. Another thing you talk about a little bit is stitching together these textual sources with archaeological evidence right. and some of the challenges this poses. 
what is a challenge you see as a historian or within the field other historians face in trying to fit the two together? I think one of the challenges, frankly, is recuperating daily life. You know, it's great to read these magnificent texts by Aeschylus and uh, Euripides and, and Sophocles, and it's, it's great to read these wonderful historians. Thucydides is one of my favorite. This is a little bit like, you know, going to the best university and listening to the most outstanding professors giving the best lectures on the greatest texts. But by the same token, you're still going to be hungry and you have to eat something that day. When you go home, are you going home to a mansion? Are you going home to a palace? Or are you going home to a hovel? Or are you going home to an apartment? You see, there's a sort of a real lived reality that complements the world of these great texts. I'm fascinated by trying to get back to what the lived reality of the Athenians was. And that's an area where archaeology can play a role. The more time you spend in Athens or in Greece generally, the more I'm struck, and I think many people are, struck by how humble and simple the private life of the Athenians and the rest of the Greeks was. They don't live in great mansions. They don't set up sprawling villas at all. The Romans will later on. But the private life of the Greeks is on a relatively modest and small scale. When they have wealth, they are either trying to purchase land in order to increase the holdings of the entire family, or they're making dedications. And the great architectural exploits, if you will, of the Greeks are in the area of religion. It's their temples and their statues to the gods. So that material world of the Greeks reinforces the centrality of religion and of cult in their shared communal experience. One of my colleagues, Jay Sammons, has written a book about basically the success of 5th century Greece. And one of his arguments is, this is a society where the social contract that keeps us together and which underpins a real democracy is reinforced by the fact that they shared essentially the same religious practices. Now, it's not quite like the modern world where, you know, doctrinally, you may either be Jewish or Muslim or Christian, and where there is a text that can sort of measure your, your orthodoxy, the Bible or the Quran or what have you. Greeks don't have that, but they do have practices of sacrifice and of prayers to the gods done both individually and by the family and by the fratry and by the local deem and by the entire community. So they are bound into a network of religious affiliations that underscore that entire society. Again, that's an area where we're dramatically different from the Greeks. We couldn't replicate that. That's very interesting. Yeah. And something you mentioned was that you personally find interesting is this fascination with the private life. This seems to me is also something that is new in the intellectual culture and thought. So one thing you touch on in your book is that earlier archaeologists did use text, but more often as a motivation and a lens for excavating Greek sites. So you have Heinrich Schliemann looking yep. for Troy in Turkey, Arthur Evans excavating Crete looking for King Minos's palace. So many of the Conclusions they made back then have been contested now with right. new ways of thinking and new evidence. How are some of the ways in which historians have used texts and material evidence together changed over the years? And how do you see that dynamic as being important? Well, there's been a very healthy change, I think, and that is that people have stopped going after big sites. 
And part of the reason for that is practically the big sites have all been taken. Famously, about 100 years ago, when both the Greek archaeological service was expanding in the service of the new Greek state and helping the Greeks to frame an identity in terms of the ancient past, and with the advent of the foreign schools, the French, the Americans, the British, the Germans, and so forth, what happened was that the big sites, the places which had never disappeared because they were simply visible throughout history, were swallowed up and allocated. For a year or two, the Americans excavated at Delphi and then handed it over to the French. The French had been working there for 100 years. The Germans took Olympia. They'd been there for 100 years. And there are literally bookshelves of the reports and the studies done by the Germans at Olympia or the French at Delphi. The Brits have basically uh, had Laconia and Sparta as their area. So most of the significant work has been done by British historians and archaeologists. The Americans, of course, actually got the Agora by an act of the Greek parliament. So it's a permanent American excavation in the heart of Athens. We do it in collaboration with the archaeological service. But quite literally, the major sites have all been divvied up. So as successive generations of archaeologists have come to maturity, they've usually been trained in these big places, but they've often had to branch out into new areas to do their own work. And there's been an economic impetus as well. Big archaeology is expensive. And so as people have expanded into areas outside of the old central sites, they've been motivated both economically and professionally to do a great deal more survey archaeology, where you put teams into the field, where they walk the fields and they record the scatter of sherds. And with the help of things like ground penetrating radar, then either identify sites for possible excavation or sometimes don't even excavate at all, but give you a profile of what the area is like. So if you look at the work of, say, um, John Bintliff in Boeotia, there are large portions of Boeotia that have not actually been excavated, but which we now know a great deal more about because of survey archaeology. And that's taken us away from the great temples and the great cities and has rather put us out to the countryside into a world of farms and farmsteads, of hamlets and villages, of rural sanctuaries and rural shrines. And that's sort of filled out our picture of the past in really interesting ways. Very interesting. Are there any intellectual lenses you see also working as impetuses for looking at smaller sites? Or do you think it's mainly the elements you've just mentioned? There are intellectual impetuses as well, and in a way, it's sort of a recursive model. If you start to do more work outside of a big city and you're working in the countryside, you start thinking about, how do I interpret this? And as you bring in models from, say, the social sciences or geography, it gives you now a new way of framing your understanding of that non-urban and rural world. For example, the Bintliff work that I was talking about a minute ago has basically shown by plotting these scatters of sherds and concentrations all throughout Boeotia that you can essentially find a pattern whereby the small towns of Greece were predictably separated by a couple of kilometres. It's pretty clear that those areas control a certain amount of land. Often they have some land which is heading up and towards the hills, which might be good for pasture, and some land that is probably good for various crops. Once you reach the end of the area that people can reliably walk in a day, you know, to and from their town centre, then the next bit of land becomes attached to another town further over. So you begin to see a hierarchy of sites. 
you begin to see a pattern of settlements that just would not have emerged if you were only reading Plato or even Pausanias and Strabo. It's something that comes from the application of social science models to ancient history in the Greek world. So I think we're about out of time, okay. so I will ask a couple wrap-up questions. Sure. Zooming back out, what is your goal and what would you like to accomplish with this textbook? I want to reach as many people as possible. This is an exciting world. The Greek world is not just done and dusted. It's not over because it's gone. It's still there and it's still something that you can actively engage with. For those of us who do Greek history, we love Greece. We love Greece as it is now. It's not the same as it was then, but it's still a glorious place. And I love being able to make people find the Greeks interesting, topical, relevant. Today, in my undergraduate class, I was talking about the trial of Socrates. If he really is an intellectual martyr, somebody who died for his beliefs, that shouldn't be forgotten just because it happened a couple of thousand years ago. And by the same token, if he was martyred by the Athenians because he was a scapegoat for a revolution that went bad and he was associated with the revolutionaries, the 30 tyrants, then we might want to think about, do we blame the teachers if their students produce horrible results in the world. If that's the case, you know, some professors at Wharton might have some concerns about the way we may view the uh, Trump presidency in a couple of years. Also, the forever ongoing Twitter debate of the baby boomers maligning the millennials and the millennials saying, well, you raised us. (laughs) That's a debate I'll keep clear of. Although, (laughs) can I point out, that sort of intergenerational strife is absolutely on display in Athens in the 5th century. Some of the concern about the new teaching of the sophists or the pre-Socratic philosophers, some of the concern is voiced by parents who clearly feel that their kids are being corrupted by these fancy new teachers. So, you know, as I joke in class, if you go home at Thanksgiving and start sprouting something that you read in Lacan or Bataille or some other theorist, and your parents are rolling their eyes thinking, God, is that what I'm paying pen tuition for? That kind of debate is going on in 5th century Athens when people are saying, why are you talking about noose? Why are you talking about the empeiron and all this newfangled scientific language? The gods are the gods. So, you know, when you get a sense of a new learning and a generation being really drawn to that and an older generation reacting against it, are we talking about America in 2018 or Athens in 420? Well, the answer is both. Well, this perhaps is a dangerous question to ask to wrap up given that, but I wanted to ask if there's any wisdom either from the ancient Greek world that you have studied or anything from our conversation today that our listeners should take away to apply to their own lives? That's a disarmingly difficult question. I'm not, as I think you know, a great believer in there being some sort of secret wisdom of the ancient world that you know we should strive to find and then we'll all be philosopher kings. I do think that in terms of attitude and in terms of intellectual humility, the words of the Oracle of Delphi are really worth remembering. Gnothi seauton, know thyself. The Greeks said, or some of them at least said, that a life unexamined was a life not worth living. And in a really broad sense, that's all I'm trying to do, to help people by engaging with the Greeks, to show them that you can reflect upon your own ethics, upon your own 
society, your own obligations to the people around you, and that that is, in fact, a full engagement with the past. That's what the Greeks have to show us. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, That was a wonderfully profound way to end. So thank you so much for allowing me to interview you, Professor McInerney. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this wonderful conversation. Tune in next time. And in the meantime, check us out at collegium.org or like us on Facebook. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. And to stay up to date on upcoming events and programming, visit collegiuminstitute.org.